Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kukkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Stein Vervat, Associate Professor of Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian and Balkan Studies at the University of Oslo. And our topic is cultural memory. Thank you for joining us, uh, Yeah, Stein. thank you for the invitation and thank you for having me here. You've worked on literature in relation to memory, mm-hmm. but the kind of memory that you're interested in is not necessarily this personal or autobiographical memory, but rather the memory of a culture or the memory of uh, maybe a nation even. Um, and you've written a book about memory culture in Yugoslavia or the former uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this idea of cultural memory and why it's interesting to study this for yeah, the particular tradition of uh, Yugoslav literature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with cultural memory, scholars generally uh, refer to the idea that Collective remembering is uh, something that is that has a strong symbolic dimension that is mediated and has a performative character that is mediated, in other words, by uh, or through the interaction of various media. This can be museums or history textbooks, but also novels and films, uh, but also in addition to broader political and media discourses. Yeah, so literature emerges here as one of the medias of mm. one of the media of, of memory. And the big difference with approaches that stress the personal or the cognition is that cultural memory, uh, per definition, is seen as as having a non-genetical or or non-biological basis. So it is transmitted through and with the help of culture and cultural artifacts that give shape to and circulate uh, narratives about the past Mm. uh, and as such contributes to giving... uh, reviving or giving body to uh, the past in the present. If I understand you correctly, then cultural memory is, uh, you don't need to have experienced it in order to remember it? Not necessarily or not at all. Yeah. So you mm. can, I, I guess all of us in the room will have some memories of 9-11 without having been there at the moment. Mm. So we have memories of these events through uh, television or maybe perhaps by uh, to uh, by uh, reading a novel by uh, Jonathan Seffron Four, mm. so we we do not have necessarily uh, have been a participant of an event or have experienced the event itself, as you said. Yeah. And for the kind of literature that you're working on, uh, Yugoslav literature, um, why is this particularly interesting uh, to look at cultural memory and the, as literature as as you put it as medium of cultural mm. memory? Well, in, in the Yugoslav context, in the 20th century, we could also elaborate on the, the 19th century, which was all over Europe, the century of romantic nationalism and state building. But in Yugoslavia, in the 20th century, the use or the abuse of the past for political purposes have has had particularly notorious uh, side, actually, especially if we look uh, at the most the recent wars of the 1990s. Okay, when I say recent... They've been, um, they ended like 25 years ago, but then again, these were one of the most, uh, yeah, horrible 
wars on, on the European continent, uh, certainly after the Second World War. But in Yugoslavia, the past was often used to establish clear-cut national identities and sometimes, as was clearly the case in the in Yugoslav wars of the 90s, also to fuel or instigate wars or even to uh, justify violence against members of a, a different ethnic or religious uh, group. And of course, since it is often the state uh, which has a monopoly on violence, it is the state who will uh, use or channel certain visions about the past and then use these to give shape to a specific national identity. And in the in the final decade of the 20th century and also in the last two decades of this century, these state-supported visions of the past have often been geared toward the discourse of uh, what we could call competitive victimhood. So the idea that the own nation, be it the Serbian, the Croatian, the Bosnian Muslim or Bosniak or the Kosovo Albanian was the biggest victim of these wars. And as such... Or this position of competitive victimhood, of course, rules out the possibility of having a, a genuine dialogue with uh, victims of other nations and perhaps their vision on wars on the one hand, but also on the responsibility of the own nation for crimes committed uh, during these wars. So the way in which you describe this competitive victims, who's been treated the worst uh, or who's had the worst um, suffering, yeah. suffering, mm-hmm. That, of course, is something that treats an entire nation as a person. Mm -hmm. That is also, I guess, a way of telling a story as you would of a nation, as you would tell the story of an individual person and and their suffering. Yeah, exactly. So it's basically resting on on a kind of ascribing identity, a collective identity to individuals without leaving the choice to the individual, whether they want to belong or not, Mm -hmm. or to what extent they want to identify with this nation, yes or no. But the use of the past as as such for goals of state or nation building had, of course, also um, a precedent before the 90s in the project of socialist Yugoslavia, which after the Second World War also tried to wipe under the carpet uh, the internecine war that was going on on the territory of Yugoslavia during the Second World War and instead create a kind of um, forced consensus that war in the, uh, the Second World War was basically a battle between Yugoslav anti-fascists on the one hand and German Nazi occupiers. Mm. Yeah, so And this whole uh, master narrative, if you wish, put under the carpet the, the, both the notion of the Holocaust as a kind of endeavor by Nazi Germany to eradicate European Jewry, but also it silenced actually inter-ethnic conflicts that had been part and mm. parcel of, of the Second World War and that claimed even or that caused even more victims than the aggression from Nazi Germany. So in this picture that is already very complicated. Where does literature come in and what are the kinds of, how does literature deal with that situation Mm -hmm. where you've got these narrativizations and these master narratives? Yeah, well, after having told this perhaps a bit black and white image of both socialist Yugoslav culture and the memory narratives of the past 30 years in this post-socialist Serbian creation Bosnian or or Kosovo uh, nation states. Of course, these master narratives are never uh, completely 
homogeneous or hegemonic. So there's always a space in public discourse and including in culture for alternative narratives. And I think there is uh, where literature comes in. So um, then we could look at the interplay between the literature written by survivors of uh, the Holocaust, which can be seen as a kind of an, an intervention into this socialist master narrative, whereas the more recent works of post-Yugoslav literature could be seen as uh, an intervention to some extent into current uses and abuses of past. So they're telling stories that might, on the one hand, I think you used the word interfere with the yeah. master narrative, mm-hmm. but perhaps also construct alternative memories. Yeah. Having said this, of course, it doesn't mean that all literary works mm. by definition interfere or work as a counter memory. Of course, there are always authors and artists that agree with this master narrative and support it. Yeah? Mm. So it's not a black and, and, and white or a very clear cut uh, situation. But I do believe that valuable works of literature can offer the reader a kind of, because of this imaginative uh, potential of literature, to offer different analogies, different genealogies and, and different perspectives on, on the past. Uh, literature can function as a kind of either intervention into or a kind of counter-memory or an alternative to self-victimizing stories or whatever you call it. Your book covers um, a fairly long stretch of literary history from the Second World War pretty much to the present day. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how the literary, let's say, construction of memory has developed in that time span. Okay, yeah, so the the first generation of survivors, they maybe per definition drew more on uh, their own experience, right? So uh, these first decades of uh, literary production that was could be described of as autobiographically based to a, a high extent, which doesn't mean that these were uh, documentary writings. So most of those people, either whether they wrote uh, novels or the drama or poetry, they, well, they combined, so to say, kind of uh, autobiographical experience with modes of fictional storytelling. For example, the use of metaphors in, in one of the first novels ever, published in '51 by a Holocaust survivor, is really uh, incredible and really distinguishes it from a, a mere documentary description of his experience. So, Josef Debreceni, the author to whose work I'm referring now, uses, I think, metaphors as a way both to draw the reader into the text and to give the reader a kind of feel of what it was to be in this forced labor camp in Silesia or to even some days in Auschwitz as well. But at the same time, these metaphors are of uh, such a nature that they push the, the reader back in terms of making a, a complete identification with the narrator of the story impossible. So the idea that, okay, this is a testimonial text, meaning of the text is to witness to the suffering of people, mm. including that of the narrator and author. But uh, please don't think as a reader that, okay, uh, after or when reading this, then you know it. No, you will never know what mm. the experience will be. And uh, this push and pull of these metaphors plays an important function in this. Uh, yeah, also already in these very first survivor accounts, if you wish. 
whereas later in the second uh, generation you have of course uh, a completely different dynamics because as the term second generation which has been been more or less accepted i think in holocaust studies implies these are children usually of holocaust survivors who grew up with the the weight of this experience mm. of their parents but very often yeah this could be realized in very different ways either their parents would be talking well very often about their experience or these children would be familiarized by photographs or family stories you will maybe recall as a comic scholar mouse mm. yeah or uh, parents could choose for the completely uh, opposite strategy not to talk at all and to silence completely but very often this would have a similar effect on the children in terms of their triggering their curiosity about their parents past and going to the archives and uh, delving into historical materials correspondences uh, and so on in order to then reconstruct the story mm. of their parents and this very reconstruction of uh, their parents history of course is something that also an author of a fictional narrative to some extent uh, does uh, yeah. does it answer your question so so this or? is i guess in both cases both the authors who experienced it and who write about it but in such a way that you can't say oh i know this and the children who or the children mm -hmm. of uh, holocaust survivors who try to reconstruct it both of these seem to be places where personal memory slides into cultural memory and the other way around yeah. that it it mm -hmm. actually gets quite difficult to draw the line i don't know yeah yeah i think it is well uh, some scholars of of collective memory some of the earliest scholars like Maurice Alpac the french sociologist he was convinced that personal memory as such does not exist and of course okay. this was in a move against Henri Bergson and mm -hmm. his ideas of very subjective time and so on but there is something to it right because just when you try to create a narrative you always imply to some extent also a reader or a listener so that's one thing and on the other hand try very hard to think of and to remember an experience where you were really alone and nobody was around and where you have no social frame yeah. at all yeah, yeah. So you're usually reacting to someone when you yeah. remember something uh, so it is indeed very difficult to completely disentangle if not impossible to disentangle personal and collective memory i think and also to neglect the role of culture or of narrative if you wish in these processes and in how far do you think these novels which i assume had a broad or have a broad readership do do you think there is something that contributes to um this hadvax uh, phenomenon that there is no such thing as personal memory that you sort of construct your memory in so far as it is tied to your identity to the stories that you've read to the novels to the the, mm. the literary versions of the past uh, yes and also very much of course depends on on the status of those novels right mm. so some authors i discussed in my book were completely well forgotten to some extent so we could say if we refer to Alida Asman's notion of the canon of active memory and the archive of passive memory that these novels were like dusting in the archives and mm. even though they had a vivid reception at the time of their publication by other novels just uh, such as those by Danilo Kish or David Albachari or Dasha Drndić whose work I discuss in later parts of my book 
are still uh, widely read and these authors do still appeal to many readers both in the countries of former Yugoslavia and abroad and are also available in translation. So that is, would then be a sort of political decision? If, I mean, the, the archive and canon distinction, if you say something is canonical, then you put it on, I don't know, the syllabus mm-hmm. in, in school. Is, is there something like that going on uh, in Yugoslavia at the moment? Or in the countries that used to be Yugoslavia? Mm. Yes, and also indeed the, the institutional power in defining what will belong to the canon and what will remain in the archives is very strong to the extent that institutions, or the state can also decide to destroy an archive, right, and just eradicate any material traces of an event. But uh, to answer your question about the canon, yes, uh, institutions in former Yugoslav countries have over the past 20, 25 years tried uh, very hard to set a specific canon, but my impression is that they usually do it through education and through history textbooks, to museums, whereas in the sphere of literature, authors still can publish a book, right? There, mm. there is no monopoly on publication in the countries of the former Yugoslavia today. So culture still has a kind of moving space, even if education might be in a, in a very bad state. Yeah, I guess it's easier to write a novel than to open a museum. Uh, yes. I mean, just institutionally speaking. Not, yeah, insti- uh, yeah, so it, it's not said that you will then get an no. award for the novel or <laughs> that your novel will become part of the curriculum. But uh, yeah. And of course, today you also have a lot of non-governmental organizations mm. who also play an important role in the public sphere in those places that, yeah, so the state does not have a complete monopoly over uh, mm. the use or the, yeah, or over the, the use of the past uh, at all. Yeah, there's of course also another meaning to canon in the sense that, I mean, there is Holocaust survivor literature in other literatures as well. So it's, I don't think genre is the right word, but it's, um, there is a, a recognizable body of literary text that deals with the experience of, say, being in a camp. Mm-hmm. And this could, of course, be a concentration camp or it could be a gulag. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are very famous mm-hmm. examples mm-hmm. of uh, gulag literature as well. Do you think there is, or do you think it's useful to talk about the specific Yugoslav literature that you're working on in relation to these other? bodies of texts dealing with that particular kind of experience? Because I assume they were translated into uh, Yugoslav languages as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one important case that comes to mind here is uh, Danilo Kish, who wrote a tom for Boris Davidovic. And as he used to, set in, uh, to say in interviews at the time, uh, he was inspired to write his novel by the publication of uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, first uh, volume of the Gulag Archipelago in French and the public debate on the French left about this book. So the French left was, because Kish was then a lector of uh, Serbo-Croatian in France, yeah, so living there, and he uh, was completely upset by the French left's take on Solzhenitsyn because they saw it as a kind of betrayal of the communist cause. Yeah, so he said, well, okay, I will write a book about this. And he basically started from the idea of 
the the notion of the pseudo uh, autobiographical document, meaning the idea that under Stalinism, people who fell out of grace, their biography was either adapted or erased from official not only documents but or encyclopedias, as it's the, the case in, in the book. But a famous example is also the retouching of photographs, mm -hmm. right? So his, uh, so he started from uh, this notion to think through basically or to stage a fictional uh, narrator who behaves as a kind of pseudo-historian who will then reconstruct the biographies of these victims of Stalinism who often started as, as very strong supporters of mm. uh, communism but then ended up in the, in the Gulag. But he then links these stories to the fate of uh, European Jewry. And uh, so there is a kind of connection between, in, in Kish's views, between authoritarianism or Stalinism on the one hand and uh, Nazism on the, on the other hand. And he tries to bring this together. But in hindsight, uh, we could question whether Kish would have been also later if he had survived, uh, uh, if he had uh, lived long enough because Kish died in 1889 if he would have been such enthusiastic about Solzhenitsyn, because later in the 80s and up till 2000, there was a debate about um, some yeah, real or alleged uh, anti-Semitism of Solzhenitsyn. So the question is whether um, Kish would still have supported Solzhenitsyn to the, mm. to the very end. Yeah, but that's maybe yeah. So I guess discussion. even within the... Let's call it a literary canon. There is an archive and a canon, and there is a dynamic going on between multiple ways of availing yourself of the genre or the topic that would then also, of course, fit into different versions of cultural memory, into different versions of building identity. Yeah, well, I think the position of an author in a canon is not set in stone. Mm. Uh, and, and also, maybe the whole oeuvre of an author or the, some books of an author can be uh, part of the canon regardless I think uh, Solzhenitsyn is still uh, mm. an important author uh, regardless of or yeah the same could be said of Dostoevsky right who was uh, also had uh, anti-semitic views and it will be very difficult to think of Russian or European literature without uh, yes. Dostoevsky yes so cultural um, memory is something that is with us whether we want it or not uh, yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about many great authors, Dostoevsky none the least. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners what they could read? What would be an interesting novel? Um, yeah, well, not all, not all of the books that I dealt with are available in translation, but I would certainly recommend Danilo Kish, a tom for uh, Boris Davidovich, and of the more recent or uh, authors maybe. Sasha Ilich, The Berlin Window, which is available in French and German translation, or uh, Dasha Dernich, one of who died actually a bit more than one year ago in the summer of 2019. And one of her books, Trieste, is also available in Norwegian translation since, yeah, recently. And I think she's been in, translated into English. Yeah, into uh, English as well. Yeah. Quite a lot, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking us into the cultural memory of uh, Yugoslav literature, uh, for talking us through all these different 
dynamics, both historical and identity memory related. And, and also thank you for, for the reading recommendations. You're welcome and thank you for uh, having me here. And thanks to everyone listening to the LCE podcast. Till the next time.